From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. When you think of pirates, you may think of far-off warm islands and tropical beaches, or perhaps your mind goes to modern-day piracy off the dangerous Horn of Africa. But you probably don't think of the brackish waters of the Chesapeake Bay off the coast of Maryland and Virginia. But today's guest, Dr. Jamie Goodall, has spent years studying that very story and has recently published a compelling account of piracy on these now quiet waters. Let's set sail for the Chesapeake Bay, but keep a clear eye because these waters be dangerous. On this week's PreserveCast. Hey, this is Nick Redding, the host of PreserveCast, and before today's episode, I want to ask you to consider making a quick donation to support the program. PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization, and during difficult times like these, every dollar helps. Your support keeps us on the air, making the case for the value, relevance, and importance of history in our lives, and we all greatly appreciate it. To make a donation, you can visit PreserveCast.org and hit the Donate button in the upper right-hand corner of the page. Thanks for all your help, and keep on preserving. Now, let's get back to the episode. Jamie L.H. Goodall, Ph.D., is a staff historian with the U.S. Army Center of Military History in Washington, D.C. She has a Ph.D. in history from The Ohio State University with specializations in the Atlantic world, early American, and military histories. She is also a first-generation college student. Her publications include a journal article, Tippling Houses, Rum Shops, and Taverns, How Alcohol Fueled Informal Commercial Networks and Knowledge Exchange in the West Indies, in the Journal of Maritime History, and various historical chapters for Gale Researcher Online. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're joined tonight by Dr. Jamie L.H. Goodall. We're so excited to talk to you. I, I presume I can call you Jamie. Uh, we don't have to call you doctor the entire night, but obviously <laughs> you have a PhD, which is pretty awesome. And you're you know, a staff historian with the U.S. Army Center of Military History in D.C. Um, and you know, we've, we've gotten your bio in the lead up to all of this, but you have a really fascinating background. So what inspired your passion for history? Like, where did you grow up? Did you always have an in- interest in maritime history? How did this all start? So um, my dad was in the Navy when I was growing up. And so I've always had a fascination with the ocean and really felt called to the ocean. Um, so I grew up uh, for a little while in Norfolk, Virginia, but then, uh, I spent the majority of my childhood in Statesville, North Carolina. So not quite close enough to the ocean (laughs) for me, but, um, what inspired my passion for history really was my mom. Um, she always had books around, particularly, I remember this time life series of books on ancient Rome and ancient Egypt, and I just couldn't get enough of those books. And so really it was my mom that sort of pushed me to explore my passion for history. And we had like, a, you know, I had the library card. So I was going to the library every week to get new books and everything. And I had never really thought about maritime history as a field until I got to college. Um, but like I said, I've always been drawn to the ocean. So you ended up going and getting a PhD. Tell us a little bit about that. What was, what did you write about? And is that sort of the entree to the work that you're doing now in maritime history? 
So I did my PhD at The Ohio State University, and you have to say the because they get very upset if you don't. Um, and while I was there, I did major fields in early America, maritime Atlantic world history and military histories. And I sort of took a roundabout way getting to a PhD in history because I did my bachelor's degree in archaeology and my master's degree in museum studies. And so I didn't really have something that drove my academic career like some uh, historians have. Um, while I was working on my master's degree, I took a European imperialism course. And one of the final projects was to write a paper on some aspect of imperialism. And I had come across a quote by someone, and I have not been able to find it again, um, but basically comparing Sir Henry Morgan with Sir Francis Drake. And I wanted to explore that because that, in my mind, I thought of them as two completely different kinds of individuals. And uh, it turned out to be a really fascinating paper to research. And so when I got accepted into the PhD program, the woman who was to become my advisor asked me if I thought about piracy as something I'd be interested in researching for the PhD. And so it sort of just went from there. Uh, I sort of fell into piracy as a subject. It's sort of, it's sort of, I mean, this is like a bad joke, but it sort of seems like, isn't that how people fell into the life of piracy, right? Like no one, no one planned a life of piracy, but they, they had exactly. it thrust upon them. C circumstances dictated it. So, exactly. So, um, what did it now in, and I'm just curious, it, is piracy studies, is it growing? Is it, you know, like, is this a, is this a thing now? Is it, is it, is there a, a pretty big community of them? Yeah, uh, I, I would say that it's growing. I know uh, ever since Marcus Redeker that um, there seems to be every year a new book on piracy. And so I know most recently Mark Hanna and Kevin McDonald have come out with their books on piracy. And so I think it's, it's such a fun field. So it, it's only natural, I think, that it draws attention. And so I can imagine it just only growing in popularity. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the Chesapeake and some of the stuff that you get into in your most recent book and make sure you give us the title for that and where they can buy it and all that good stuff. But for someone not from this area, we have listeners all across the country, all across the, the world for that matter. Um, tell us about the Chesapeake and perhaps maybe just like a like an intro to piracy in the Chesapeake. Um, if you were trying to give us the, the brief entree to this and, and whetting our appetite for, for buying your book. Yeah, so the Chesapeake. Um, really, the Chesapeake is such a perfect area to research for piracy because the economy of the Chesapeake uh, was based on the region's accessibility, which really made it a convenient space for importing and exporting goods and people throughout the Atlantic. Um, and so, you know, the Chesapeake Bay region is massive. It encompasses both Maryland and Virginia. The bay itself extends roughly 200 miles, I think it is, uh, from Haver de Grace, Maryland in the north, all the way to Virginia Beach in the south. And so piracy is affecting a number of locations throughout the entirety of the Chesapeake. Um, I focused quite heavily on Maryland, just because that's where I am. But, 
it was easy to bring Virginia into the study, particularly looking at like Richmond and Williamsburg uh, and Chincoteague Island and stuff like that. But I would say the, the Chesapeake is a really interesting place because for the longest time, the economy was based on tobacco. Um, but the society of the Chesapeake was not really marked by the same extremes of wealth and poverty as other regions in the Atlantic. So you have this sort of moderately wealthy merchant class at the top. And in the middle, you have a rather large group of small and middling planters with a great mass of indentured servants at the bottom. Um, between that great mass of the more impoverished people, plus the ever presence of war throughout the Atlantic world, the Chesapeake was just really ripe for piracy and privateering throughout the colonial era, all the way through the war of 1812 and into the civil war even. Yeah. Which is interesting. And I mean, um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, before we take our break here though, name of the book, where can people buy it? Let's make sure we get that in right at the beginning here. It's Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay from the colonial era to the oyster wars. And you can find it on Amazon. You can find it at Barnes and Noble. You can also find it on the Arcadia Press website itself. Fantastic. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about perhaps some of your favorite characters or pirates uh, from the Chesapeake that you unearthed in your research. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit ballotandbeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about Lavanya Engel, a dedicated suffragist, state legislative delegate, and civil servant, read by Casey Roan, the primary researcher of Maryland's historic context statement on the state's suffrage legacy. Lavinia Engel, suffragist, delegate, and civil servant. Lavinia Engel was a dedicated political operative whose long career included service as a field organizer, nonprofit director, elected official, and civil servant. Her experience reflects the enormous expansion in opportunities for women that occurred over the course of her lifetime. Engel was born in Forest Glen, Maryland in May of 1892 and graduated from Antioch College in 1912. At 20, Engel joined the March 3, 1913 National Suffrage Procession, a massive parade through DC that brought sympathy to the suffrage cause after the march was broken up by anti-suffrage crowds. She was hired as a traveling organizer by the National American Woman Suffrage Association, known as NASA, and deployed out to states including Alabama, New Jersey, West Virginia, North Carolina, and Texas, where she worked throughout 1915 and 1916. The lead-up to the 1916 federal election was an important time for the movement, when suffragists sought to punish anti-suffrage candidates at the ballot box. 
Engel's work in Texas made an impact. The number of suffrage clubs in the state increased from 20 to 81, and member enrollment grew from 2,000 to 8,000 supporters. The suffrage movement was challenged in April of 1917 when the United States joined World War I. Many Americans believed that women should turn their attention to the war effort, but radical suffragists saw this as a flawed strategy that had failed women during the Civil War. NASA, the more conservative wing of the larger movement, chose to support the war effort. Engel began organizing for the Liberty Loan Committee rather than directly for suffrage. Eventually, she was deployed to Europe to organize a YMCA staff field hospital operated by women, and only resumed her suffrage activism after the war ended in 1918. Even before the passage of the 19th Amendment, suffragists began laying the groundwork to prepare women to vote. In 1920, the League of Women Voters was established as a nonpartisan advocacy organization that would guide the 20 million soon-to-be-enfranchised women. Lavinia Engel was tapped to serve in a leadership position in the Maryland League of Women Voters, organizing citizenship schools across the state to train women to utilize the ballot. Engel eventually served for 10 years as director of the Maryland League of Women Voters. In 1930, she ran for the Maryland House of Delegates and became the first woman delegate elected from Montgomery County. She would later serve as the first woman on the Montgomery County Board of Commissioners. In 1936, she was appointed as chief of the Division of Field Operations of the newly created Social Security Board. She spent nearly 30 years in federal service, where she distinguished herself as a pioneer of social welfare programs. Lavinia Engel passed away in 1979 after a lifetime of public service. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're joined by Dr. Jamie Goodall, and we're talking about all things piracy in the Chesapeake. Um, before we took our break, uh, we heard a little bit, sort of set the scene for um, why piracy unfolded. Obviously, there was a, a strong economy in the Chesapeake, and so there were things to steal, I guess is the simplest way of putting it. And um, let's talk a little bit about maybe some favorite characters or or pirates that you unearthed in your research. Um, I'd, I'd love to know about some uh, some of these folks from from the Chesapeake region. So my my favorite group of I guess pirates. Um, there's these. I, I don't have names for them, but there's these women um, during the Oyster Wars. Governor Cameron was determined to cut out oyster pirating. And so he's on board this ship called the Pamlico and they witnessed a potential pirate vessel called the dancing Molly. And the governor hoped that this attack would be relatively easy um, because the men of the dredge boat were on shore searching for wood. So their pirate vessel was sort of, uh, at least according to the governor seemed abandoned. But what he didn't know was that the captain had brought his wife and two daughters along, and they had remained inside uh, the main boat while the men were ashore. And all three of these women turned out to be very skilled seafarers themselves. And so when uh, Governor Cameron and the Pamlico began to approach the Dancing Molly, the women ignored his warning shots and took advantage of the winds that were in their favor. And they were able to escape across from Virginia waters into Maryland waters. And according to um, a report in the Norfolk Virginian, 
spectators along the Virginia shore were really rooting for the women, uh, especially when they realized that the crew getting away from the governor was women. And so the dancing Molly was able to get out safely from Virginia to Maryland waters. And this was a particularly humiliating defeat for the governor. Yeah, I, I bet it was. Um, so, and I like that the dancing Molly, I mean, I feel like we need to name something in Maryland after that. (laughs) So, um, maybe as a follow-up to that one, is there anything that you learned that really surprised you in writing this book? Well, I was surprised by how few people were actually caught and or killed. <laughs> um, I expected a lot more prosecution of, of pirates throughout the Chesapeake. Um, I would also say I was kind of surprised by just how prolific piracy and privateering was in the Chesapeake. Um, just because when we think of pirates, we think of the Caribbean, um, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean, the the films really, you know, sparked the imagination. So when it came to the Chesapeake, I was worried, actually, when I started researching that I wouldn't be able to find enough to write an entire book on. Um, But in actuality, I found so much information that I actually had to cut a lot of it out uh, just because this was a book written for a popular press and I couldn't turn in a 300 page manuscript. Right. So I guess there's, there's more to report. Maybe, maybe another book coming down in the future. That would be nice. So, um, I'm curious. I mean, you know, this is the the podcast of Preservation Maryland, and I'm curious from a preservation standpoint, have you found anything left to protect that tells the story of piracy in the Chesapeake region? Are, are there places, structures, ships for that matter, that speak to that story that should be protected that aren't or, or that have been protected? Well, as far as piracy and privateering goes, I think it, if you look at Baltimore, the, they have the replica of the Pride of Baltimore. Uh, which is an important, even though it's a replica, I think it's an important piece of history that links Baltimore and the harbor with piracy and privateering. It's it's hard because pirates weren't really leaving behind artifacts uh, for us to find, mostly because it's all about plausible deniability. But I would say as far as preservation goes, just making sure that we preserve the uh, places that we know of uh, like Havre de Grace, um, like Palmer's Island, Annapolis, Baltimore, uh, Fells Point, just to name a few, that by preserving those areas, we can help preserve the history uh, related to piracy and privateering in the Chesapeake. Right. And I'm curious, and I, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but were any pirates caught and tried in Maryland? Were any of them hauled into courthouses or did that ever happen? Yes, actually. Um, Now, when we get to the heyday of piracy, a lot of those pirates were sent back to England just because the the government felt that pirates weren't getting um, real trials in the colonies. They felt like the colonists were letting the pirates off easy, um, that they were becoming nests of pirates. But uh, we do have evidence that some pirates were... Uh, prosecuted in Maryland and Virginia. In particular, the very first known pirate, William Claiborne, um, some of his, um, the individuals involved with his piracy, uh, his cohort, they were actually tried in Maryland for their crimes, and they were the first recorded men hanged for piracy in the colonies. 
go Maryland. Look at us sticking it to the pirates early on. <laughs> um, so that, that's, that's, that's really interesting. And I'm also curious, I'm presume it's the oyster wars, although I guess it depends on your definition of piracy. When is the last act of known or documented piracy in the Chesapeake? So the last I have is of um, Berkeley Muse's death. I think it was in 1959. Um, Berkeley Muse was a well-respected community leader in Colonial Beach, and he was enjoying his evening with a friend of his, Harvey King, who had invited um, Berkeley to join him to dredge for oysters later that night. Um, and King reportedly said, I don't give a damn about the police. Uh, so the two men go out dredging around midnight, but unfortunately for them, the chief inspector of the Tidewater Fisheries Commission had organized a stakeout on the river after receiving reports of illegal dredging. And so the men get caught and a just barrage of warning shots uh, were fired after the speeding vessel as they tried to escape. And uh, Berkeley Muse ultimately dies from being hit. And so this was a, a huge scandal for the Oyster Navy. Um, the Maryland Oyster Navy officers were actually warned to stay away from the Virginia shore because the Virginians were like, no, we see what you do to your own people. We don't want you anywhere near us. Um, so in 1959, uh, the Oyster Navy is disbanded because it was too controversial and according to reports was clearly ineffective. And so the tragic death of Berkeley Muse sort of marks an end to the Chesapeake Bay Oyster Wars and really to at least what we know of as piracy in the Chesapeake. Interesting. And in a strange way, I mean, it's it's not piracy now, but um, the battle over not not so much dredging, but basically going in and harvesting from sanctuaries and what will be sanctuaries. I mean, that fight continues in the Chesapeake to this very day. Um, and it, this is like not only a piracy story, but it's also sort of central to the beginning of the environmental movement. Uh, so it's 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 interesting how it's all intertwined. Um, and of course, pirates are at the, at the heart of all of it. Yes. <laughs> so um, what's next for you? Um, we heard that you might have enough content to write something more on pirates, um, but obviously you're a professional maritime historian. Are you working on something else that we should keep an eye out for? Well, I'm working on trying to turn my doctoral dissertation into a monograph for LSU Press, uh, which focuses on pirates in the, the Caribbean or the broader Atlantic world. So I'm hoping to have that done in the next couple of years, but uh, writing a local history has been really interesting for me. And so I'm thinking about proposing a book to the History Press again, um, but this time focusing on piracy in New York and sort of the mid-Atlantic frame of like, so Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, that sort of region. Um, taking it a little bit further north and seeing what I can do with that, just because we know New York was such a hotbed of piracy because of their connection with Madagascar. So I think that that would be really interesting to take a look at. 
Well, I'm I'm fascinated because I I don't I don't know if I speak for all listeners, but I didn't know about New York's connection with Madagascar, and I suppose I need to read your book to find <laughs> out what that's all about. So, um, I mean, it's fascinating stuff. If people, you know, obviously they the you gave us the title of the book, maybe give us that again, but also do you have a website where people can kind of keep in touch with you and and find out more about what you're working on? Yeah, so the book is called Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay from the Colonial Era to the Oyster Wars. And I have a website. I don't blog on it as much as I'd like to, but I do keep a running list of my uh, work that I'm doing. Uh, it's jamiegoodall.com. Well, and then, it. of course, they can find it. <laughs> it should be easy to find. And yeah, they can yeah. also follow me on Twitter. And what's your what's your, your handle on Twitter? So it's at... La Historienne, which is L underscore H-I-S-T-O-R-I-E-N-N-E. So if people speak French, they're French all French. set. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in, and if you didn't catch that, you're driving, just go to jamietogoodall.com. And I'm, I'm, I know for a fact that her Twitter is linked there. Um, so, um, final question, normally the most difficult question for any historian or somebody who loves history. Um, what is Dr. Jamie Goodall's favorite historic site or place? That's always such a tough one because I love so many of them, but going with the theme of the Chesapeake, I'm going to say I love Annapolis. There's just so much history there. It's beautiful. It's on the water. It just has everything that a pirate-loving Chesapeake Bay visiting person could ever want. Yeah, absolutely. And I think most people who go to Annapolis don't think of piracy, so perhaps they can look at it um, with a new lens and uh, picking up your book uh, might give them some of that information that they need. Um, It has been uh, a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your good work um, and looking forward to seeing what you write next. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.